Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, as well as insights in how to navigate the capital markets. What you'll hear in these interviews may very well change the course of your career, your company, and your life. And before we get started, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company, and I encourage you to reach out to them at any time. You can find their contact information in the show notes. Now, on with the show. Hi, listeners. Welcome back. Today, we're speaking with Gabriel Alonzo Mendoza, who is the co-founder and managing partner of Ambest Capital. They're a New York-based firm who focuses on investment banking, fund management, and also the market management. So I think we're going to have a really interesting conversation and the best place to start, Gabriel, is with uh, an introduction from yourself. Yeah. Thanks, Corey. Thanks for having me here today. Yeah. You know, I was born and raised in Miami, Florida, Cuban parents, and I moved to New York City shortly after graduating university in 2008 and started my career in, in finance there and formed Anvest in 2017 with my business partner, Stuart McCliver, who's originally from Perth, Australia. And really, the Anvest is really like the intersection of a bunch of work I've done over the years professionally, both on the buy and the sell side. And my career has really been focused exclusively on natural resources and really the mining and, and the energy industry primarily. And that really came about because I was a student of value investing, Graham and Dodd. And I was investing in these kind of companies when I was in, in college. And then a lot of those companies, you know, if you remember 2008 was a big financial crisis. We lost a couple of banks and a number of other things. And some of the investments we had that I was making were in sort of financial type firms following some big investors that I had been, you know, reading about over the years. And I was trying to find a hedge to what I thought would be like a credit expansion in the markets. And I found gold. And then I found that you know, to get leverage to gold without actually taking leverage, the miners were a great place to do that. And that's actually what got me my first job because there was really nobody doing mining in in New York. And and I basically spoke with a with a hedge fund analyst that was an alumni of my school and he had an internship and I he asked me what I was investing in and I said I'm investing in gold miners and he's like, well no one really knows that. And so that's how I got my job and from there kind of just got deeper and deeper into it. Yeah, interesting. I definitely want to talk to you a bit about, you know, reliving 2008 and your point of a credit expansion. But before we do that, what brought you into or how do you look at investing in metals and mining, especially within Ambest Capital? And I'll be, you know, really frank about it. Like with our audience, CEOs and IR pros, a lot of them are from the metals and mining industry. Now, when you look at it from a capital standpoint, and whether it be banking that or investing in it, how do you approach this? 
it's interesting because there's a lot of different ways that you can approach it through the life cycle of a mining company. And so one of the great things about the industry is how intellectually uh, challenging it is. It really is a combination of so many disciplines that you have to be, they, they have to have some sort of handle on. It's extremely difficult to master, right? Because you have to know geology and engineering and chemistry and capital markets and geopolitics and macroeconomics and human behavior. And so we think about all of it. It's yeah. wild. So, so you think about all of that, it's, it's extremely difficult to build a model around it. And, but the way you, that we kind of look at it at Anvest is based on, you know, sort of risk profiles as it relates to the development stage of the asset, the experience of the management team, and then sort of where we are in that capital stack, how, how cheap we're, we're investing, sort of when we look at it on a valuation point of view. Or if there's any other sort of sweeteners to the to the investment, that's how we kind of approach it, and then make a decision based on on that if we want to to take it on, whether we want to take it on with a client on the banking side or the marketing side or or the investment side or all or all three. Okay, and what are the what are the companies that you typically work with? What's a you know a profile of of one of the companies you'd be taking to market? Yeah, and you know it's it's a great question because we we do work with a small as like a private who's private landowner who's amassing claims or private entrepreneur rather who's amassing claims and so we'll we'll put some risk capital alongside him if we know him and or, or we like what they're doing and then all the way up to you know multi billion dollar cash flow generative companies so but I would say kind of the sweet spot and where we can create some value uh, for ourselves and and the market would be something that has some identification of drill results and that we can then build a, a model around and then generate a future forecast on what we think that resource will grow to and then the MPV on IR of that asset to get to its intrinsic value. And so that's that would be the best. And those are typically, you know, companies with smaller market cap. So in the range of like 50 to 100 million, where you could see, you know, a two to five X. Okay. I'm curious to know how your your approach to evaluating these companies has changed over the years. You know, surely you've learned a lot. And I mean, there's so much to to think about when putting together a model and and seeing or identifying kind of unrealized value. How has that changed in the 13 years since you first started looking and investing in these kind of deals? Yeah. One of the biggest things that's changed and it's fluctuated over time has been the liquidity. In the market, so we've always been in the in the public markets, and and sort of when I started in 2008, let's call it, and first first investments in mining companies were 2007. Those are great times, and then we had like a, a nice run up into 2011, and then we had another, and then we had a fall off, and then we had a nice run in 2016, and then we had a fall off, and then we had another run in 2020. But each time, you know, you had pockets of liquidity appear, and so you know you really have to take in your own personal situation of and your view on when you think you can achieve liquidity or when you think you can achieve value uplift because really the stocks move because of positioning right you can have this great intrinsic value asset you can have it could be right from all the numbers point of view but if there's no investors positioning into that stock then you're never going to get that re-rating and you're never going to be able to get out Mm -hmm. and you know so getting in is just as important at the right price is just as important as getting out. And so I think you have to kind of 
ascertain where you view the markets going and then make decisions based on where you think you can achieve that liquidity because, and, and that also is important when things are really, really hot, let's call it in 2020, you, you don't want to be buying things that are sort of been overvalued. So, mm-hmm. so when those pockets of liquidity come, you know, it's, it's more of a time to sell than it is a time to start to position again. I mean, you can add on and you can sort of, you can buy around the edges, but you hopefully are already a position prior to those moments coming. And, and then, you know, just, just for everyone's benefit, our view is that we're going to see another nice pocket of liquidity here form, you know, maybe to the back end of next year. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I'm curious about that. Let's actually use that to dive into a question that I had earlier is 2008, we had the financial crisis and the expansion of credit, which I think, you know, almost theoretically leads to potential inflation as we've seen over the last few years, you know, kind of a repeat. But what I haven't seen is that that typical movement into gold as a as a preservation of, of capital and as a, a hedge to to inflation. Why is that? Why I think there's a lot of people and specifically in the gold industry going, why not? What's happening? Why is nobody caring? Do you have a, a theory on that? I think it's, you know, I look at sort of dollars and cents. And so I think it's the evolution of the capital markets and the evolution of, of financial instruments. And also really just the time that has passed. We have to remember that a lot of the people that were investing in gold at that time in 2008 were in their 50s and 60s. And now, you know, mm. they may not be around. And also, you know, the, the the legacy there is not necessarily hasn't been interested in the mining space. We saw, you know, and we're seeing it now sort of a lack of, of intellect in the mining sector. And we've seen that sort of brain drain happen over the last 15 years or so. And it's really gone into other industries like tech and things like that, right, that have been more exciting. I think that's changing now as we transition to new form of energy. But yeah, it's 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 definitely there. I think that's part of it. So you so let's call let's let's be specific about it. I would say, you know, cryptocurrencies have taken a lot of investor appetite. And, you know, you've had you've had the traditional sort of the bond market operate in that way as a safe haven. You've had the US dollar is stronger than ever. And so you've had a lot of positioning going in into those things. And so there's been a skepticism around gold. I guess there's always been a skepticism around gold, but the, I guess the new generation of investor is is less convinced that that's the only way to do it, and and I think that's part of the reason that you're not seeing the the move up that you saw maybe in 2009. Hmm. Yeah, I was, I was kind of. I think you make some good points there because I was remember I was looking at a stock chart of gold over the last 20 years, and thinking to myself that. The gold bugs would have made a lot of money between kind of that 2000 to, to like, you know, even 2020, like it was a nice, a nice move up, but they made their money and they're out, they're now retiring. And so, you know, you've got that money moving out of, of the market and not that same kind of appetite there. And, you know, so many other alternatives for capital or places to put that capital. So yeah, interesting to hear your notes on that. The next thing is, I'm curious about how to approach the capital markets now. If you're an issuer, whether you're a, a junior or more senior company, how would you, especially in, in, in a liquid market, how would you be approaching this market if you're representing a client like in an investment banking relationship? So in terms of raising capital for these companies, I think it's a, it's, if we're not in a bull market, right? We're not in, a, in an aggressive market. And most of the time we're not then in our sector. 
then I would say the most important thing is relationship building. And so it's a sort of a fallacy to believe that you can just pick up the phone and call a bunch of investors and, and get dollars into your company. I think that happens mm-hmm. during certain periods of time, but where, you know, most of the time you're not in that. And so I think the way to approach it is sort of not just presenting your great idea. I mean, I think that's somewhere in the middle of the process. I think you start out by cultivating your audience, by building your foundation. You present the great idea and then you follow it up and you do what you say you're going to do. It's sort of very basic human behavior stuff. But, you know, I think you need to build the the trust not only within your initial investor base, but also in the market as a whole. And, and you do that by really the old adage, right, under promising and over delivering. And in this sector, you know, it's very easy to under promise, but a lot of investors or a lot of CEOs kind of go the other way because it's also very easy to kind of over promise, right? Because you can mm-hmm. say, Hey, I'm going to be doing this over here. And this, and we think that's this is going to be this result. We think there's going to be this many ounces or this many tons at this grade, but it's just a, such a complex thing to get right that you're better off just, just saying, you know, here's what we think it's going to be, but you know, really it plus or minus 50%, really, because that's kind of, that's kind of how it is. And that's the risk that you have to be willing to take as an investor in the sector. And, but the upside is tremendous when you get it right. You know, there's a lot of pain on the way and there's a lot of volatility on the way and you need to be able to stomach that. But if, if you do, then, then there's spectacular returns. Yeah. So, so in, in thinking about that, like what kind of time frames when you talk about relationship building, especially within the the cycles of of the commodities markets or you know precious metals, we have kind of the the risk on high liquidity, things are great, and then boom, it's a bust. What kind of time frames do you look at for, or would you advise companies to be thinking about when relationship building and working towards raising capital? I would say, you know, one year would be sort of the the amount of time that you should be focusing on building a relationship with a specific group of investors. And then in terms of when you get that close, a realistic time frame to have an exit or to have some sort of like a come to Jesus moment would be two years, right? So from our point of view, if we're in something for two years and we haven't realized our what our milestones were or, you know, something, then you usually have to come back and say, Hey, here's where we are. This is what we did wrong. This is what we think we can, this is the landscape. And then it's really up to the investor to decide if he wants to continue on. But I feel like the relationship really never really stops because there's so many investors that you have to, you have to meet. Frankly, you know, the reality of this sector from the investor point of view is that they rent the stocks, you know, they don't buy them. Hmm. And and so because of that, because of the nature of that, you're kind of always having to do replacement. And so really the relationship building doesn't ever stop. But but how long does it take for you to go on a date and then go steady? I think that's that's probably a year. Yeah. It's funny that sometimes there's an expectation that I'm going to walk into the boardroom and they're going to write a check. And it's like, no, it doesn't work that way. Right? It's I mean, sometimes it does, right? When things are really, really true hot and then you're just basically you're trading it but again it's this whole you're not going to get a sticky investor yeah buying the hype selling the news and and you don't have somebody who's actually in into like committed to the story correct yeah maybe we can back up a little because i still want to i want to understand more about ambest so you've got like an asset management 
portion of your company and the banking and then the investor relations side. Can you break each three of those down for us so it's better understanding? Yeah. And so the asset management, so we do have three, three, I guess, three divisions, you know, asset management where we manage two discrete pools of, of equity capital. One is just principal capital and the other one is a, is a branded fund called Teradin. The investment banking side where we mobilize capital into these companies and we do that through fully regulated means here in the U.S. with FINRA. And then the investor outreach part, which is, you know, investor relations, marketing of these companies to, to a whole group of investors, the whole universe of, of investors that, you know, and that, and that sort of changes over time. Okay. And then, it, I mean, I would imagine if I was a company coming in, meeting you and pitching you, the somewhat of the, the process would be, you know, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but you would look at us and say, hey, we like what you're doing. We like the management. We want to take a position in and then work with you to, to grow and bring and mobilize new capital to come in and help grow the company and then manage the market thereafter, kind of like a full, full service, full cycle. Yeah, and exactly. And, you know, we, we wanted to build Amvest as a kind of an industry-focused merchant model, similar to a lot of how a lot of major Wall Street firms started, but really, you know, differentiate by, by being in the U.S., right? Like I mentioned earlier, there was just very little expertise in the mining space in the U.S. in particular. And so, you know, play on that strength and wait for, and wait for the, the cycle to come. And I think, I think we're here now in terms of it coming in terms of what the energy transition is going to bring to the material space. Okay. You know, it's funny. I think that it's probably one of the only things where Canada has a larger kind of industry sector is those, you know, the professionals in and around mining and the capital markets, Canada and Australia. Right. It's something that, that the U S can't shake a stick at. So I think it's really novel that you're in the space from, from the U S. It was kind of one of those things like, I mentioned, you know, it was it was really what what got me my my first job outside of Miami into New York City into New York City High Finance, which which you know I went to the University of Miami, so I didn't go to an Ivy League. In two thousand eight, there was just the banking classes were were tiny, and we had lost two full banks, and so it was really the only foray was was this avenue, and then it just became one of those things that I became a real student of voraciously ingested content of the space and tried to learn as much as I could. And then it's one of those things that you kind of like fall in love with when you really start to get into it. At least I did just because of that, that notion that you need to know so many different disciplines in order to get it right. And so I said, well, this is something that I could be, I could be learning for the rest of my life. And that was exciting to me. For me, it was, it sounds similar in the sense that we've been working, you know, I kind of say I grew up in the world of financing and building tech startups. And that's where I learned public venture capital and working on the capital markets and raising money. And I did my damnedest to avoid ever working with a mining company because I'm like, oh, it's just rocks for jocks. It's boring. Not, And then one comes to us, a referral comes in and I started to get into it and I started to realize the characters in the business and the, the, the crazy odds and the variables and the, the complexities and the amount of intelligence and education it takes to take something that is what is just a, a track of land all the way through to an incredibly valuable asset that's needed around the world. It is just, it's mind boggling. So uh, yeah, fascinating industry. I wish more people recognized it. 
Yeah, and it's right now it's you know as as you mentioned it's, it's a small community, and so when I look at it, at least from my point of view, we're always trying to do the best that we can and and act in, in the in the most ethical and, and and honest way possible because you kind of feel like you have to take care of those people because it's it's all there's really like one degree of separation between pretty much everyone, and so that 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 kind of keeps everyone honest, I think, also. You know, that's it's interesting you say that because I feel very much the same way about a an obligation to. Protect might be the wrong word, but to to really, I want to see the people in our industry and in the early stage capital markets and the mining and the the minerals and public companies act with more integrity. And I, and I get so put off when I see companies run these like half million a million dollar promotes on you know a bunch of moose pasture and the regulators let this fly because to me it burns the the investors that we need to support a very vital industry. And it bothers the hell out of me. Now, there is an absolute requirement to go out there and market a company and to use various means of on and offline measures to do that. But when I see these these huge promotes for for stuff that's just clearly to run up a stock and somebody to move some stock out of a rat hole kind of thing, it pisses me off. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I think what what you hit on something is very important, right? It's, It's the reverberations it's the what happens afterwards because because it doesn't necessarily just affect that one stock it affects the ecosystem around the whole industry and and so if you lose if you lose in credibility even if it's just in this little tiny one particular security just the power of of the human word and and the power of of everybody sort of being so interconnected it's a much bigger hit to, to everybody else and so i feel like you're absolutely right i mean if and you kind of see it time and time again that the companies that are that are doing things the right way are the ones that are really you know focusing most of their capital on developing their assets. They're focusing their their promises or their you know their forecasts. They're 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 keeping them very very conservative, and they're engaging in that sort of in that sort of way with the broader audience of investors. And, and I think that the ones that do it wrong would be the ones that kind of don't act with integrity. And really at the end of the day, this is like investing is, you know, we say it's it's a big boy business in the sense that you make that decision on your own, right? Mm-hmm. Whether you're a fund manager or you're an individual investor, um, you're making that decision because that's what you wanted to do. And so if you are being swayed by improper or, you know, by lies effectively or however you want to call it by, you know, and then you make that decision, then all of a sudden you you don't even trust your own self in making these decisions anymore. And so then you just wipe that investor completely out of the market in terms of our market. So, yeah. so whether it's this stock that they lost in, they'll they're just not going to trust on the on the next one. And if it's a professional money manager focused on the space, then they're gonna have to continue to invest. But of course, they won't be investing with you or your friends or whoever you're connected with. And so you, you know that you kind of kill kill all those avenues. Yeah. There's collateral damage that comes with it. That's right. That's, yeah. that's the word. Yeah. Now, in in something that's completely unrelated, I'm wondering if you can take me back to your early days on Wall Street. You know, you ended up in, and you you do work in you know, high finance with a, a niche in the world of metals. But what were those those early days like, and how was how was it building your career on Wall Street? Because I think it's globally, it's for some, it's the the top aspiration to be to be on Wall Street. So take me through that. It wasn't as glamorous for me as it may have 
uh, appeared to others and and definitely not in what was what you you'd be used to when you're coming out. I had, you know, very little to my name and but I used that, you know, I'd spent a lot of time just reading and I spent a lot of time just learning, you know, to the point where I was sleeping in the office because I was I was saving up money to get an apartment. But all those things are kind of lead you to become a survivor and and you really need to be a survivor in this industry as well, just because you need to be able to go through the ups and downs and handle volatility. But that's kind of like how it all started. It started just really from from the floor, effectively, literally. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I, I got picked up by this sort of uh, private equity type firm and sort of started to learn the Canadian RTO market because they were taking money and investing in privates and then putting them on the exchange. And then from there, the UBS healthcare group took over Jefferies in 2010 and the, the high energy guys left Jefferies and formed their own bank called the Global Hunter Securities and they were looking for a mining desk. So I was the sort of third hire in New York there and helped sort of build that mining team out. And then the downturn in 2012 came and I kind of went right back to being an entrepreneur, kind of doing things on my own I, with some bankers I, that I work with. And that's where I met my business partner. And then uh, it was actually my wife who suggested that that we kind of go on our own and 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 do it. And she you know she believed in us and all that. And and so that's how it all started. Wow. Yeah. It is. I think from the outside, it's always like there's a, a perception that it's always you know bigger, better, and easier than than it actually is. But it is a freaking grind. It is. Well, I guess it doesn't always have to be. But you know, I I also work with some people, and, and this is you know there's. There's all kinds of stories in between, but sometimes when you have too much too quickly, you don't, you can't really sustain it or you kind of, you blow yourself up from like a personal point of view. And I saw a lot of that happen from guys who were maybe started at Bayer or Lehman and then moved to, you know, smaller banks when those went out and they were, you know, they were living the high life and over there and then, you know, couldn't really continue that because that was just a different time in the market. So you really couldn't continue that going forward, but you still wanted to. And and you're still like in your late 20s, early 30s, and it, it these some of these guys don't have families, or you know they have a lot of things happen that that I otherwise wouldn't have wanted to happen to me, and so I kind of I kind of went like slow and steady, and that's that's been my approach, and yeah, just try to be as humble about it as you can because it can eat you up too, like the success can eat you up. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's I've had those discussions before about how early money too fast too quick can just it can eat you from the inside out. But then I've also like, I'll, I'll never forget our, the former executive vice president I've worked for when I first entered business after university, he was a former Wall Street banker. And so he'd been in New York for years. And he said, if you're not making half a million a year, you're under the poverty line in New York, in Manhattan. I'm like, oh my God, man, that is a rat race. <laughs> Yeah, I just yeah, it's expensive to live. I mean, even more. I mean, more so now than than probably then. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's. I mean, it's. I think indicative of of you start running in those circles and you start needing to yeah to play that game. It's it doesn't it doesn't come cheap. Yeah, I mean, there's a, that show Billions. There's like a funny scene there where you know one of the guys, the main character, is talking to like a, a supporting character and saying, "How much do you have in your bank account?" He's like, "About a hundred. He's like. Okay, well, you got to pay this school, you got to pay the house over here, the house over there, the boat, this and that, da da da. And the guy's like, "Yeah, I'm broke." Yeah, <laughs> you know? he's like, he's got a hundred million, but he's but he feels broke, you know. And yeah, and so that's 
that's the sort of thing that if you get too caught up in all of it, then you see it a lot. You know, guys make more money and their expenses go up alongside with it. And so, yeah, yeah, slippery slope, isn't it? <laughs> slippery slope to the top. Interesting. Maybe we'll bring it back. I, w- I want to get more into into investment banking and raising capital. And the reason why is I think that you make the point of, of it takes time to develop a relationship, but also to run a process. You hear that thrown around. What is running a process? What is an investment banking process? And is there are there things that work better than others when raising capital and engaging the, the buy side? Yeah. And so running a process is, is, I guess, varies depending on your popularity as a, as a security or as an investment proposition. So if you are a liquid, large market cap story that's been around for a while, then running a process is very sort of blocking and tackling, I guess, in the sense where, you know, you put together a roadshow, you've, you've got a timeline from beginning to end, and, you know, you basically hit the markets you need to hit. You get your, your book together of your soft indications, you kind of firm those up along with price, you price the deal and you're done. So that's, but that's also like a, a, an elite sort of group of, of companies. And most of the companies that we work with don't have that level of following, don't have that level of, of liquidity, let's call mm-hmm. it, where it could just be, you know, a two week process and, and you're done. So really running a process is really should start, let's call it, one to two quarters out from when you actually need the money. And that should be, that should be, you know, a process of investor engagement. You know, obviously you set, you set your milestones ahead of that, what you're going to your use of funds and your milestones sort of afterwards, you engage the market and, you know, you, it's really a global effort. And then you kind of do the follow-ups, you know, if you've got some, some news along the way, you want to make sure that you're, what you told the investors, you know, a month or two ago, you're actually doing and that you're showing the, the results of that work, whether that's a drill program or that's a PEA or some network or whatever it is. And then, you know, then comes time to to call on the capital. So it's, you know, who's had interest along the way? What's the degree of interest? How much can we put together? You know, get some soft indications, get that book together again, and then try to do, you know, a set timeline for, for an open and a close. And in Canada, it works. The open and close is much longer um, mm. than, for example, in Australia, where it really could just open and close in a number of days and some, sometimes sooner. And also different from how we do things in the U.S. too, from the U.S. market, it's, you know, where you have overnight deals and things like that. But I would say that's, that's the, that would be the general process. And it really is a process of, you know, investor engagement and of making those sort of claims that you're going to be doing X, Y, and Z, and then doing them and then coming back and saying, hey, uh, I've done them. Here's the results, and we're going to need X amount to achieve these next set of milestones. Are you are you interested in supporting us? Okay. What about some of the more nuanced dynamics you've seen? And I'll give you an example of something that I've seen that works really well is is kind of the the tag team approach, and perhaps that's the CEO and the chairman, where the chairman is there. Perhaps they bring credibility, but they're really they see their role as as bolstering the CEO's position and they, they, they play off of each other, right? As a nice dynamic, or I've seen it also seen with like CEOs of early companies and, and a promoter who comes in and they, they know how to work the room together. Have you seen that? Or have you seen things that I, I want to add to this? Perhaps it triggers ideas for you. When I've advised clients before, I said like, if there's any more than, than four people in the room, you stand up and present. Don't hand out the pitch deck first. 
right? Like you are the reason why they're there. They're not there to flip through their pitch deck and look at your phone. So tips like that, any, any examples that you've seen work or that you like companies to do? You know, you have to um, build excitement for what you're trying to sell, right? I mean, there is no doubt that you want, you need to, you need to sound excited. You need to sound promised, like there's promise here. It can't just be so technical or it can't just be too salesman. So you're going to have to find that, like that nice balance between being able to sound like you're excited about stuff and also be able to answer the, the more intelligent, more technical questions that may be asked or that you're going to be preempting. And so, and of course there's different styles when you're sitting face to face with one manager in their office, it's different than, you know, presenting to a room of, of investors in a, in a, you know, in a banquet setting. And yes, yeah, so I would agree with you that, you know, in one of those banquet settings, you know, you want to, you want to, you know, make sure that your presentation is easy to read. That's all up on the screen. Cause the guy in the back, you know, is not going to be able to read the fine print and you want to, you know, those are sort of presentation techniques that you want to make sure that, that you're on top of. But then of course, when you're in the, in the meeting with the, with, you know, one-on-one that you're going to want to see, all, you know, make sure you have a presentation that shows all the detail things so you can go through it, you can point things out, et cetera. But yeah, I mean, outside of, for me, I guess, my flavor for outside of outside of sounding excited about something and making sure that you're you're tempered about it and that you know you you have the wherewithal to be able to answer more difficult let's call it questions it's just about you know staying honest about the message and uh and seeing where it goes i mean there is no you have, you have to kiss a lot of frogs so you have, yeah. you have to be you have to kind of go into each meeting and kind of have that like self-awareness that you know what, like this is probably don't have any expectation, right? The expectation, if you're going to have one is a no, but if you have that, if you go in with like that, no expectation, then you may ruin that like hype or that, that, that excitement that, that you want to bring to the table. Mm-hmm. So I would say no expectation and you take every single one to see the exact same. Okay. One thing that I've, I've approached financing before on, and this is where we used to raise money was we put together a list of investors we're going after. And we'd always aim to get the meetings with those who we knew were going to say no. And we knew we were going to get beat up, right? Like just, and so we'd go in there, test the pitch, come back. It was a bit of a, you know, it was a bit of a a dress rehearsal of sorts because you just knew that they're not interested, but then they also had feedback and then we'd get better. And then we'd start going to the ones that were like, Hey, I think these are pretty good bets. And you know, the ones who we would be able to potentially get a lead order out of sooner than later so that we could use that to, to, to wave the flag to say, Hey, look, look at this big name who said yes. Any other thoughts around there? Like things that you just, like you see CEOs, you're like, God, I wish you knew this. Keep this in mind. I would almost say the other way around is also really interesting because if you, you kind of pitch your parents first, I would say, you know, like really like, and they're going to be the harshest critics, you know, the ones that are closest to you at the end of the day are going to be are going to be harsh critics. And if they're confident in you, whether or not you get it right on the first pitch, it doesn't necessarily matter to them, right? But they'll give mm-hmm. you the feedback that you need. So so you shouldn't be, you shouldn't go into it afraid, right? And and then you can go to the guys who maybe say no, and you can convert them to a yes. Mm-hmm. And then that will be a huge moment for you. And so yes, absolutely, like practicing your pitch in terms of, but getting the feedback from the people, I think that are the closest to you, because for a couple of reasons, one, They'll, they'll sort of critique you without, without feeling bad about it, right? So they, there's no sort of lens there of, uh, hey, I, I need to act more proper. So they'll, they'll, they'll tell you how it is, right? 
one and two, you know, they're, they're, if they're really like your close relationships, they're not going to just, they're not going to say no, because you said there was going to be a jury result. That's this and you, and you messed it up. Right. So, mm-hmm. so I think, I think there, you should take some comfort in that and always lean on your best relationships first to refine because they, they, at the end of the day, want the best for you too. Right. So everyone wants, you know, can't push the cart up the hill on their own. And, and so if your best investors are there already and they're easily accessible, talk to them first, right? Tell them what's going on. And they'll they'll want other people to, to kind of support also for lots of reasons, right? But I think that that, that would be my advice in terms of yeah. how to approach. I appreciate it. I appreciate the different look at it and, and the, the different approach. And so what about after capital's raised? What's your take on investor relations? And yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Invest relations is something that should be happening all the time before, during, after capital raised. But especially after capital is raised, now you want to make sure that you are very, that you understand clearly what it was, the basis of which you've raised that capital on. And you want to make sure that you are laser focused on achieving the goals that you have set out during that capital raise process and that you, that you've, you know, made aware to other people what it is that you were doing, right? Because you don't, last thing you want to do is sort of miss on something or or say that you were going to do something and then you don't do it, right? Mm. And it's okay if, if if things don't work out exactly the way that you had hoped they would because they never really do. But when they don't, also remember that you said that they were going to be in a certain way and you say, listen, it didn't work out this way because, but address it first, right? Like be the first one to say, hey, I messed up or hey, I thought this was going to happen and it didn't happen. Or like, don't don't wait for us to say to you, "Hey, you promised me this." And like, some some people at my firm like have really great note taking, and they'll say, "Hey, on 16th of August, you spoke to me about, and you said you're going to do X, Y, and Z. Like, why, you know, by today, why hasn't that happened? You know, you don't want us to ask you that question. You want to basically preempt that and say, "Hey, look, yeah, I would do this, but we couldn't do it. The laptop backed up, or whatever." Right. I think being preemptive there, and just you know, good news and bad. Something that I've I've experienced, with, for example, with private placements, is investors' remorse, where you get hyped on a private deal, you put money in, the company takes some money, and then it's radio silence. Hmm. And and then I contrast that to another company that I've participated in, and every month we're getting a shareholder update, and it is so so refreshing. Even if that money goes to zero, I'm investing in the next deal because. There is a consistent communication of the good, bad, and the ugly of what's happening. Um, and m- mind you, this is a consumer packaged good company, and it's it's private. But that's, I think, there's a a lesson in that of of communicating, even if this was delayed because of this, this, and this, and not just trying to hide behind a press release or thinking that people read press releases top to bottom and and have a a firm grasp on what's happening. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. You know, and like in any relationship, communication is like is paramount, right? You need to have good communication with your wife. You need to have good communication with your investors. And that's sometimes you can over communicate, meaning like, you know, you're just putting too many things out there and they're, you know, you're, you're, you're spending too much time on, on that side of things. And so there is like, I guess, a balance of that, but absolutely mm-hmm. the good and the bad you need to be communicating and, and regular communication is is extremely important. It's mandatory, I would say. And, you know, sometimes you don't always have to communicate about 
what you're doing in the business. You can also talk about some other things that are, that are happening. Like I went to this conference and I met this person. This is what's going on. This is the kind of things I'm hearing. Or I did this, this bike ride, right. For like a, to raise money for this nonprofit. And I care about it because of X, Y, and Z. So you, you got to bring the human element as well into it a bit. And that really changes the dynamic that you have with your investors. Yeah. It's uh, I just find so often that it's forgotten that in our business, of buying and selling securities it is it's people right i mean yes we have we you know we can do a bunch of math and and create some models but when it comes down to it it's all about people and how are you seeing the investor relations change and and, and with the practice that you have under ambest how are you balancing on and offline kind of digital and and traditional investor relations and investor marketing now it's i guess it's one of the good things to come out of COVID is sort of this sort of social acceptance of online communication. Really the, I guess it gave people the opportunity to, to discover what was online, um, mm. whether podcasts, right. Or, you know, any sort of form of, of digital media from the point of view of cost saving. We also see it as a huge benefit because you used to spend block out time in your month or calendar effectively to go on a road show spend the money, right? Do all that. And it was really just introductions. Now, you still may have to do that in certain markets, for example, like going to see European high net worths, for example. But for the most part, you can do your introductions now very much online. And and you can you can create a lot of investor awareness online. And then you were closing deals in 2020 online, but now really, you know, the, the person the human touch is 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 again coming back into being important because, you know, that's, I guess it's just always was, but uh, you couldn't do it when you couldn't do it. So, so we're seeing is kind of, you know, you do your intros um, online and then you, you, you go and you follow up and you close in person. That's an interesting point. I guess, for example, um, some broker client or contacts that we have, we talk to them like, you know, what's it like, you know, can you, can you still pull together a room of, uh, of brokers to see a deal? And they're like, fat chance. Like everybody's, you know, working from home as brokers or investment advisors. And, but I think if you do the introductions online and you pull together a, a group, how many ever, when you're coming through town and if you've impressed upon them the potential of who you are and then keep some consistent communication, when you actually come to town, there's a far higher probability they'll show up to actually have a, uh, an in-person with you. Yeah. And, and you, you just mentioned how uh, rare and in person with some of these people is. I think to the extent that you do all these things virtually, like you mentioned, and you communicate and all that, and you get those, you get them to come see you in person, your likelihood of closing is just multiplied exponentially because mm-hmm. you're, they're only seeing a few when they were. I remember there used to be literally every hour was blocked off with a new company coming through town, right? And coming to the boardroom. Now, it's maybe one or two companies a day max. Uh, and so the likelihood of those companies getting an investment is just, has just, you know, multiplied. Yeah. You know, something that I, I learned was uh, I grew up in the restaurant business and uh, my parents also had a catering company. And one of our clients or the family restaurant clients for catering was RBC Capital Markets and mm-hmm. a group of uh, investors in, in a very wealthy kind of part of, of Vancouver. And so one thing I noticed was when the pharmaceutical companies came to town to to flog a deal or whatever it was, they would always go crazy on the lunch. We're talking lobster, rack of lamb, all of this kind of stuff. 
and they would fill the rooms. And then you'd have these other guys come to town and they just like buy a few lousy pizzas from the first place they could find. And it was like crickets. It's just, it's kind of a funny thing of how do you actually get people to a room? Like bring the lamb and lobster. <laughs> yeah. The key to man's heart is in his, is in his stomach. Right. But uh, <laughs> forget gender. I mean, um, yeah, you, you want to, you want to build a nice atmosphere at the same time that could that's a slippery slope as well because you could be trick yourself into thinking that you were very effective, mm. um, but really people were just there to have the food. You know, we just for a good lunch. Guys. Yeah, we, we we call them like uh, we joke about calling them like sandwich eaters, right? So guys who would just come in for the sandwich and they didn't really care about the presentation and they you know they weren't engaged or anything like that. But the, but the room was filled because there was such a good spread. So, and, and I think I think the the damage there is not necessarily because you fed somebody. I think that's fine. That's great. I think the the damage is kind of like, I guess, the dollars invested and versus what you're getting out of it, but also kind of the the perception that you've that you've um, yeah. had such a good job when in reality it, it, it was it was anything but. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Just a, a side note. It's it was RBC Dominion Securities as the, the wealth management, not the capital markets, but Dominion Securities. Yeah, I, I cre- appreciate your counterpoint to that. Man, we're already like almost at an hour here. Oh, awesome. So a few other questions. Um, personal or professional, what's been the biggest setback, the biggest failure that you've had that's really opened up opportunity or opened up something that uh, that came from that? Yeah, I think and kind of it's an important lesson, I think, for all anyone who's a CEO or any sort of leader, right? You have to trust in your team. And, you know, you don't want to be the guy in the pizza shop, the only guy in the pizza shop making the pizza, right? You want to have everyone helping, putting the toppings on, et cetera. And I think sometimes you have too tight of a grip on certain things and you don't necessarily let the strengths of every person you don't let them play to their own strengths as much as you should because you mm-hmm. want the oversight because you want to control the the message or you want to control the way that the process is done. And I think for, for me, you know, especially building the business and, and, and having different people come in and out and things, it's been, I think that's really what's opened, what's opened it up a bit more for me, for me to have more time to do the things that I love and also do the things that I'm great at and let everybody else also have that have those moments where, where they're doing the things that they love and they're doing the things that they're great at. When you have that sort of dynamic, then, then the, the whole organization thrives, right? And, and you need to have people that you can trust in, which is the hard part. But once you have that, then just let it fly. You know, I think anybody that works with us will tell you that, you know, quality of life is great and everyone has a great time. And uh, I think that's really important because, it, it, you know, you want to you wanna build for the growth of the team and the growth of the of the organization. And so yeah, so basically giving everyone their their wings and giving them the ability to kind of take things on their own without supervision as much as as maybe you you would have otherwise had. So is that is that been something you've struggled with and that you kind of just been trying to let go and and, and seeing, you know, seeing the benefits yeah. of doing so? Yeah, because yeah, I think so because I, you know, I always thought like unless I do it, it doesn't get done. Or I'm the one who's going to drive the result, and then you kind of there's there's not enough time, you know. As as you grow, there's just not enough time for you to do everything. So you have to kind of find a way to pull back from that 
and and give in you know but first things first is you have to find people that you can that you really trust and you believe in but but once you've got that like that's golden and yeah it's it's gonna it's the best it's the best way to grow yeah just let go just let huh. go a little bit, yeah and then any books or podcasts media that that inspires you that is kind of your go-to yeah so i you know i'm not really big on like i don't really watch tv or do any uh, media or like visual media podcasts. I don't, I don't like, don't really do much. I'm not, no offense or anything, but um, let, to... let me get you into it, man. This is the way yeah. to go. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd love to, you know, I, I had that 45 minute train ride into the city. So, you know, I, there's time to, to definitely do it and listen in, but I would say, look, I think for me, so, so let's, let's go with books. Cause that's really what I can offer um, insight in, but the, so first and foremost, I think the, the most important book is whatever, whatever sort of religious affiliation you have. So for me, that's the Bible, right? So I think that is like the groundwork for anything. So make sure that you are well aware of whatever it is that, that, that you believe. And then from there, I guess on the finance side, you know, a great book for Charlie's Almanac by Charlie Munger. It's a, mm. it's a great, great big piece of reading, but it's, but it's, it's full of great, great insight. And then, you know, one for a global business that, that is the mining sector uh, is called Kiss, Bow or Shake Hands. And it's just the ability for, you know, it's, it's a great book to be able to, to read before going into different meeting rooms in different parts of the world and sort of understanding and being sensitive to, to different cultures and how they operate and just be, become a better global citizen. Okay. Okay. Awesome. I appreciate that. That sounds like well, all three big reading. <laughs> nice. Gabriel, as we aim to, to wrap up here, any final thoughts to share with our audience? And, and yeah, any final thoughts? Just thank you. And, uh, you know, thanks for having me on. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks to the audience for listening. I hope I was able to share stuff that, that people found insightful or useful. And, um, and of course, if you ever want to learn more about us, you can just go to ambestcapital.com or follow us on LinkedIn. We, we, we aim to post a lot there. Awesome. Such a pleasure, man. Thank you very much. Thanks, Corey. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.